the back of John's Gospel to chapter 20, uh, verse 30 and 31. And before we read, let's pray and ask for God's help in understanding what we're coming to. Father, thank you again for your word. When it comes to thinking fruitfully about it, we, we can feel so inept at times and conscious of our own proneness to misunderstanding, uh, proneness to be dull and unperceptive and so miss what you would have teach us and uh, the joy that we would have through receiving that teaching and believing it. So we pray tonight you would open our eyes and enable us by your spirit to be attentive to what you would say to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, John 20, first of all, this is, uh, I've explained before that John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, I want you to think of it as like a key. It's, it's a key in your hand that unlocks the under, your understanding of the whole of John's gospel, okay? Uh, you should read John's gospel, in a sense, backwards. Uh, that could be quite difficult. Uh, uh, but you're to try and read it backwards, and I mean that by looking through John 20, 13, 31. Here's what it says. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. In other words, this book contains some amazing stories, miracles and signs that Jesus performed in order to point people towards God. But this is only a few of them. This isn't them all. Uh, so there are far more that, that could have been written, but that's just a wee aside. Uh, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, these words that we have in John's gospel, these miracles, these signs, these words are written so that you may believe. In other words, that you may have faith in God. And here's what that faith hangs on what you believe about Jesus Christ. It says here that, in other words, true belief is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised one from the Old Testament, the anointed king, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what you think about Jesus Christ has a, a direct relation to whether or not you have life. How many of you have life tonight? How many of you think you have life? That's a key question. We were thinking about this a little bit in John chapter 3. Nicodemus coming on the scene, you know, knocking on Jesus' door, having a chat with him. You know, Nicodemus is a Bible man, but he doesn't know the truth. Uh, and Nicodemus was a good man, but yet he wasn't, according to Jesus, an inheritor of eternal life. He needed to be born again. He needed new life. And again, there's something of a challenge here for us, I think, as we come to the end of a little section in John, starting off in John 2, the wedding at Cana, where he performs his first miracle, and this in John 4, at the end of John 4, a kind of Cana cycle. He's done full circle. He's been to Jerusalem. He's back to Cana again, and is going to perform another miracle. The question is, what do you think about all this? Uh, have you made that connection through faith? to become an inheritor of the eternal life that Jesus promises because you know and because you trust him to be the anointed one, the promised one that God, the, the anointed one that God promised to send. Indeed, the very son of God, as John chapter 1 reveals to us. Let's go back to John 4 then. Verse 43 
and following. This is all about the nature of true faith, okay? After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. Well, it's an incredible, incredible text. What we're going to do is I want us to think about three questions tonight. Okay, number one, what do we learn from this text about the nature of true faith? Number two, what do we learn about Jesus, about who he is through this miracle? And thirdly, we're going to get there. What about you? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? That's where we're going. So think about uh, number one. What do we learn about true faith here? And, and I think the first thing that we're supposed to highlight from here uh, and understand from this text is that true faith is not mere association. If you look again with me at verses 43 to 45, we have Jesus here uh, in a sense, welcomed with open arms. But for Jesus, I reckon it's an unwelcome welcome. Why? Uh, to answer that, I think we need a little bit of background. Um, in Luke chapter 4, one of the other true accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, uh, there, there is the account of uh, dating to the very onset of Jesus' ministry uh, after he has been baptized by John the Baptist and returns to his hometown of Nazareth after 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. And that's, of course, in Galilee. Here's the link. Uh, he reads the scripture on that occasion publicly. Paul read from it this morning, actually. Uh, he read from uh, Isaiah 61, from the Old Testament, a section which everyone knows is about the coming king. Jesus, the anointed king, Jesus sits down and says, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. And essentially saying, Jesus is saying, I'm that king. And initially they're a bit baffled. They're like, this, this is Jesus. Isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, as if to say, how can he make a claim like that? Uh, and then essentially they got very mad at him. 
and they, they were furious. They were, they were saying horrible things to him. They took him out of the city to the edge of a cliff where they were going to basically throw him off the end of it. But he, he managed to slip from their grasp. Um, they were outraged. Uh, so what is it that makes these people who, in Luke 4, we remember, drove Jesus out of this region of Galilee, essentially, only on this occasion to welcome him back? Well, I think there's something of a link in what Jesus says in Luke uh, 4.24, where he openly says, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And if you you were listening to our Bible reading, you go back to John 4, and you see that in there, in brackets, in the in NIV. It doesn't need to be. Uh, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his home country, as if to say, I'm coming back to that place. Luke's gospel, John's gospel was written after Luke's gospel, by the way, so I think Luke's gospel, they would have been aware of that in circulation at this time. But Jesus is coming back to that place from which he had been driven out. And these, this, this same region, he visits, they welcome him now with open arms. And my justification for saying that these are the same people relates to the fact that John comments on this region as the people to, Je- to whom Jesus had said, a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Verse 45 tells us exactly what's happened to make them welcome him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. I mean, essentially, this was news of a country boy making it, in some sense, in the big city and then returning. And that news of what he was doing at the Passover feast was spreading. What's he been doing there? Well, he has cleared the temple. He has confronted some religious leaders, which was quite a brave thing for him to do. He had uh, confronted them basically about their hypocrisy and performed many miraculous signs. And verse 23 makes a significant connection between the fact that Jesus performed miraculous signs and people believing in his name. If you go back to chapter 2, just over the page, verse 23 tells us, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw all the miracles he was doing and believed in his name. And we might think to that, well, that's great. Praise the Lord. But before we get to that thought, look at the very next verse. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. In other words, they put their faith in him. Jesus didn't put his faith in them. They said they trusted him, but Jesus knew their hearts, so did not trust him. It's exactly the same word in Greek. So Jesus, I think, is returning to this region where he performed the wedding miracle. Uh, and and preached in the synagogue in the region. And these people essentially are are not welcoming him with any kind of authenticity. They're not acknowledging him as the Christ, the Son of God, that we read about in John chapter 20, verse 31. They're welcoming him back as some kind of miracle worker. He's not being welcomed as the the sin-bearing Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, who came from the Father, as John 1 says, full of grace and truth. They're just not getting who Jesus is. They're not hanging on his life-giving word like we've just seen from the Samaritans in chapter 4, 
uh, before this text that we're handling just now. So they've received him basically because they're fascinated by the signs he performed. But really sadly, I mean, you would know it would be absolutely futile, you know, to go out from this place and to stand, you, you know, you're trying to get to Glasgow, let's say. I know it's not that complicated, but uh, think of somewhere complicated. No, Glasgow, that's where it is. Uh, say you're going to Glasgow. I mean, what would it be if you just stopped at the sign? You were like, there's the sign. It's pointing that way to Glasgow. And you just stood and looked at the sign. Isn't that a beautiful sign? Look, it's blue. I mean, who thought that? It's just so attractive. It's pointless. You know, the whole point of signs is not to stand and gaze at the sign, you know, or marvel at that. You're supposed to go to what it's pointing to, and it's exactly the same. These miracles are signs pointing to the glory, the, ma- the magnificence of Jesus Christ as they authenticate his claim to be the Son of God. These guys are looking at the miracles. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's an unwelcome welcome. It's not an uncommon thought for us, though, isn't it? I was thinking about this during the week. Uh, for some reason in the office, I was chatting to our, our office manager about uh, Susan Boyle. <laughs> uh, I don't know how that came up. <laughs> She's my hero. Uh, uh, I was speaking, I don't know why I said that, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, our office manager grew up in the same town and went to the same school, not in the same year. Um, but she said that Susan Boyle was just notoriously teased uh, and rejected and really treated very, very badly. But she was also commenting on the fact that since Susan Boyle's rise to superstardom, you know, she walks back into... Blackburn and the people who once mocked her almost look on her with pride. You know, there's, there's Subo. There's my girl. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that they're saying. But I think that would be an unwelcome welcome, even to Susan Boyle, wouldn't it? I mean, what is that? It's just a kind of prideful attachment to someone special born out of a desire to kind of boost our own ego. It's pretty pathetic really and I think this little section then contains a stark warning for all of us because it tells us that true faith is not mere association in other words not all faith is saving faith not all faith is saving faith it tells us that profession of faith and possession of faith are not the same thing. People believe in his name, but Jesus does not receive them. Not because he's not true to his word, but because he knows their hearts and that they are being disingenuous. It's frighteningly easy to come to Jesus and not actually come to Jesus. It's frighteningly easy to come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. People do it all the time. People come to him not because they acknowledge him as the Savior King who died on the cross to take away their sin and meet uh, their deepest need for reconciliation with God, but because he meets one of their felt needs. I think there are people sitting in churches all across this land, in this city, maybe even here in this room, who are happy to receive Jesus as healer because they love the thought of being disease-free as protector because they love the thought of feeling safe as a ticket to heaven because they want to hedge their bets and really don't want to get it wrong 
after death or as one who even adopts you into his family because they don't like being lonely or as provider because they don't like the thought of being in want. There are lots of reasons why people come to Jesus. But if they are not superseded by that primary recognition of the fact that your biggest problem is not your loneliness, it's not your want, it's your sin, you're, you're in great danger of coming to him for all the wrong reasons. And please, I, I make this appeal to all of you, maybe more to some of the younger folks here, because I think it's perilously easy to come to church and just think you're a Christian, because you're in the mode of it. You're doing all the rigmarole, you know? But I just think, you know, in the, in the same way that, that, that going to a garage doesn't make you a car, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. You get that? That's, a, that's strange, I know, you know? But... Yeah, going to, make, going, to make, going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac, basically. Okay? It, it, there's no correlation there at all. What makes you a Christian is truly, genuinely, with sincere faith and trust to put your hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you done that? Is that why you've come to him? Look at your life. Maybe that, maybe that will show you what you're putting your hope in. Are you praying prayers of repentance every day? Do you have a serious view of the sin that is committed in your life? If not, if you feel no need to repent, you should maybe start tonight. Because it could be that you have been misguided in this. If people don't receive Jesus with sincerity on the basis of his person, his work, his word, wherein the gospel is central, they don't receive him. Now, that's unsettling. And maybe that's good. Maybe if that convicts you, better to have this pointed out so that basically you can come to terms with it and so that we can help you come to terms with that and talk you through that than discover it on your own when it may be too late. True faith is not mere association, okay? Jesus receives the unwelcome welcome, comes to his own, but his own do not receive him genuinely. Look at what happens immediately following that in verse 46. Immediately introduced to a royal official, a man who comes seeking what? <gasps> a sign. Oh no, wrong time. You know, Jesus is receiving an unwelcome welcome on the basis of the signs, and the man has a need. His son is sick and close to death. Traveled 15 to 20 miles away to ask Jesus to heal his son. He's asking for a miracle. Now, you're supposed to get the fact this is a tense scene. Okay? It's tense. You're supposed to see that in the lead up with the unwelcome welcome. And the question that I think is begged of us by John introducing this guy in this story is, what is this guy? Is he a savior seeker or is he just another sign seeker? Is he a savior seeker or a sign seeker? Is he wanting Jesus' power and actually nothing more of Jesus? Or is he wanting all of Jesus and will receive anything from his hand as good? I mean, there's no mention of anything in this text apart from the man's son. And it's almost a case where it's another example of I have a need, fix it, not I have a sin, forgive it. And in verse 48, Jesus says to him explicitly, he actually says it in the plural. It's the yous, okay? Uh, but he's, he, you will see that he addresses it to him. Unless yous, you people, is the, that's why the NIV has you people. Sorry, it's there. 
uh, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. So whether in desperation or boldness or both, the man just persists and just says, come down before my child dies. It's heartfelt. And I think verse 50 is key for us in understanding what's going on here because it says two unexpected and, un- and astonishing things. First of all, it says, Jesus, it gives us Jesus' reply, go, your son will live. But secondly, I mean, that's astonishing in itself, and we're going to get to that. But secondly, this is astonishing. The man took Jesus at his, what? Word. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And here is where I think John just serves up for us an understanding of what true faith really is. True faith is to take Jesus at his word. True faith is to take Jesus at his word. Isn't this what the Samaritans just did in the earlier part of John chapter 4? You know, there was no miraculous sign. Fair enough, Jesus was quite perceptive uh, and knew the heart of the woman he was speaking to at the well, but there was no sign. The people come out from this town and hear from themselves. In verse 42, they say, we no longer believe just because of what you said, as they speak to the women. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the savior of the world. No account of any miracle or sign there. They take Jesus at his word and Jesus marvels at their faith. True faith. And what we see here is this man just responding with similar faith. He did not insist, Jesus, just come with me. He didn't seek any kind of guarantees from him. Jesus spoke. The man obeyed without question. He believed and he went. Oops, excuse me. Now, I think what this highlights for us is something of true faith as we even have it in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read it to you. It's, it, it tells us what true faith is. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So this man is a walking, talking illustration, I think, of true faith. Because according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith has two key components to it. Number one, assurance, and number two, conviction. This man had a faith marked by assurance, as if to say, I believe it, I believe it. But he also had a faith marked by conviction, as if to say, even by his act of departing, I believe it, and now I'm actually going to live like I believe it. The two were tied together. Faith, friends, is truly a reasoning trust in Jesus and his word. A trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently upon the trustworthiness of the word that is offered to us the word of God. And true faith is that steady and certain knowledge of his great and magnificent divine love and even his loving kindness, his benevolence towards us, which when founded on this, the truth of the gracious and kind promises in Christ is is revealed to our minds, confirmed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we walk through this life believingly taking Jesus at his word. Does that define your life? Do you walk through this life believingly 
taking Jesus Christ at his word? Or does your life, the decisions you make, the things you do, the things you repeatedly do, do they serve to show that actually you don't quite have as much faith and trust in Jesus as you should? Augustine says, faith is to believe what we do not see. And the reward of this faith is to see what we believe. So much truth in that. Faith is to believe what we do not see, and the reward of faith is to see what we believe. It's a perfect description, I feel, of the experience of this royal official, having taken Jesus at his word, walked away believingly through faith. He is rewarded with the joy of seeing what he believed. Look at verses 51 to 53. What do you see? This boy lived. His servants come, they tell him, your son is alive and his recovery is directly linked to the word that Jesus spoke. It's astonishing, it's unexpected and amid the sea of sign seekers around him with a disingenuous faith is a man converted, granted saving faith because he took Jesus at his word. Oh friends, if only, if only we would be given faith to do that. If only all of us would believe in that way, to take Jesus at his word, trust him as a result of, and as a result become a recipient of this true, genuine, eternal life that he holds out for us, not only us, but like the man in this story as well, all of our household. All of our household. He came pleading for the life of his son. And now he and his son and his whole family have been given the right to be called children of God and are recipients of a greater gift even than the, the current recovery of his son. They've received the gift of eternal life by believing in his name. That's what we understand about the nature of true faith. That true faith is not mere association, but true faith is to take Jesus at his word. And my encouragement for you tonight is to do the same as he holds out words of eternal life to you saying, come. Eat, drink, believe that you may have life in his name. Secondly, what do we learn about Jesus? We learn a couple lots of things about him. Two things in particular. Number one, Jesus is gracious. This is amazing grace, what we're seeing in here. Jesus does not commend the man or the people around him, does he? He's actually quite blunt. Uh, he's not pleased at the sign-seeking, disingenuous, false faith that abounds in Galilee. Nevertheless, despite this unwelcome insincerity, despite Jesus' Even in this scene, seemingly being hemmed in by sinners, knowing their hearts and despising their desires, he gives the free gift of healing to a child not even there. He gives to a man he's never met, a royal official who in all likelihood works for Herod Antipas, a man who himself will demand a sign from Jesus closer to his crucifixion, as part of his trial, and mock him and add his amen to everyone on that day who will be shouting, crucify him. 
To a man who only wants the power of Jesus and not the person Jesus, he gives grace. And he holds it out to every one of us. He holds out that undeserved favor for us to take hold of. This is what we see in this text. This boy's healing was a free and gracious gift. It was a miracle, uh, not to be marveled at in itself, but to point to Christ who is infinitely more marvelous in himself so that we might again do and see what we're supposed to see through this key in John 20 to see through these miracles and these signs and wonders that Jesus is the Christ, the promised anointed king, the son of God who came down to bear our sin in his body on that tree to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities so that by his wounds we might be healed. This is a gracious act which shines forth to us all the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such is the character of God before us. It doesn't just show us that he is gracious, though it shows us indeed he is powerful. And John wants us to see not only the grace of the healing, but the power of it. The boy was dying of a fever. The power of Jesus to heal is seen in the fact that he did it with a mere word. Isn't that incredible? Your son will live. It's incredible. And with that one word, the the physical chemistry of a boy's body changed. The power is seen, of course, not only in the fact that Jesus healed, and the fact that Jesus healed with a word, but the fact that Jesus healed... (laughs) At a distance. I mean, the boy was 15 to 20 miles away. He was not present there. It doesn't matter. The boy could have been 15,000 miles away. And if he, the creator and sustainer of all things, speaks a word of truth, wills it to come to be, it will happen no matter where it is. And he graciously, powerfully healed this boy with authority And without any kind of spatial limitation to that authority and to that power. And I believe even in that, confirming again what we have seen in John chapter 1 in the first few verses, which tell us that Jesus, the Word, who became flesh, was with God in the beginning, the creator of all things. He's demonstrating for us his power. This man's son was free from the chains of death in more ways than one. And of course, as I've said, he and his whole household were set free through the grace and the power of Jesus. The same grace is offered to us. Again, it's made plain for us in this text. And my encouragement for you, take Jesus at his word. Take this as true and bank your life on it. Bank your life on it. There is nothing else will stand like that rock we were singing about. Faithful one, so unchanging. Of what in your life can you say that about already? What area of life can you say that about where you are given such faithful security that you know you can cling to something and it is immovable? Your spouse, 
No. I know my spouse will die. She knows I will die. We don't know who's first. But we know that we are full and final trust, though we trust and love each other wonderfully, that's not ultimate. Was it in our children? I mean, this man was concerned about his children. Well, not even in our children. Well, what about in our stock portfolios or our bank balance or our investments or fill in the blank? It's all shaky ground. The only one that is a rock on which we can stand is Jesus Christ and life in his name. What else has the power to forgive you your sin? You know, who else could offer you such love and grace? Who else holds the keys to eternal life? No one. Nothing. Which is why I plead with you to see tonight that Jesus is the only way. And that you should put your faith and trust in him through his word. If you're a member here at Charlotte Chapel, you come regularly and you are a genuine believer. Praise God for that. That's an evidence of his grace. You should be thankful. But think this through. There are so many people out there who are either banking on other things or looking for signs in other places and not regarding Jesus as anything worth considering. They're not even at the point of thinking, oh, Jesus is a sign seeker. And this is why we're running things like Passion for Life. This is why we're praying for people we would hope to bring. And that's just a tiny part of what we're doing in terms of our evangelism. Because, of course, we are all entrusted with this gospel, not just to be recipients and hoarders of it, but to be transmitters of it, to pass on what we receive. I think this text just highlights for us again the nature of true faith and the necessity of faith in Jesus Christ in order to have life. How many people out there do not think they're alive, but they're zombies? They are walking dead. Who will tell them? Will you? Will we together? We must. What will we tell them? Jesus is gracious. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is the promised king of old. He's the servant of Isaiah 53. He is the son of God who died for us and gave his life as a ransom for us to rescue us from eternal death. Let that fill your heart and let it fill your mouth. To close, I ask the third question, what about you? Even to those who've, never say, who've said, I've never seen such signs, I say, see his word. Hear what he has said. See what he is doing and speaking in this alive word this evening and recognize his word, your hope secures. There is security in what he has promised. Uh, I was thinking this through with our students this afternoon as we were looking at a, a fairly sizable chunk of Joshua and uh, Caleb in Joshua chapter 14. Uh, you, you see this, just this little text of five or six verses and a, real, a really clear indication from Caleb who is who is testified to in the pages of Scripture as one who is faithful. 
One who did well. The Lord rewarded him. He was blessed. What was the driving force behind Caleb's life? On what was he banking on? It was literally five times in six verses. The promises of God. There is not a word of God. A promise that he has made that will fall to the ground. He will do all that he says. And he has said if we put our faith and trust in him, he will receive us and grant us life. He will change our status before him from guilty to pardoned. And he will give you the promised Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come that you may live and walk believingly in his name. We have never seen the risen Christ ourselves in the flesh like his disciples have, but his spirit, his Holy Spirit has enabled most of us here to see his self-authenticating glory in the biblical witnesses, even in this text. I see it here. Do you? Do you see the glory of Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, in this text? Because the Christ I see here has won over my mind and heart. Has he won yours? I I, I can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I live by faith, in other words, not by sight, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? Peter puts it like this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do you rejoice in that way? I pray tonight you will. You can confess your sin before him. And tonight, express a belief so that you can depart from this building walking believingly. Believing in the promises of Christ for eternal life and living as if you believe it with genuine faith and genuine trust in Jesus Christ. Please, do so tonight. Confess your sins. Call upon the name of the Lord. Be saved. Be rescued. He's paid the price on the cross for all of your sin. There is no need for shame in coming before him because he knows it all. Walk out of this place believingly. And brothers and sisters who already believe, walk out of this faith believingly, knowing that Jesus had said that this gospel will go out to the nations and that he has entrusted us with a responsibility to share this gospel with our family members, with our friends, in our social networks, in our workplaces, for the glory of his name, recalling his promises. I pray we would do that to the help. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this picture of the gracious and powerful Son of God. We see through these signs and through his remarkable spoken word that he is the Christ, the Son of God. We believe this testimony of the biblical witness a word that is true, a word that is living and active, a word that cuts us to the heart. And I pray that anyone here tonight who does not know you or who has a disingenuous faith, that you would sweep that away and grant them by your spirit to know eternal life tonight.
and to know that your word, their hope secures. And may we as a church, Lord, may we, we know we have a gospel to proclaim. Help us to be faithful. Grant us not might or power, but your spirit. Give us yourself, Jesus. Give us yourself through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might join the voices through the ages in the nations saying, look unto him and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.